Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Richard Leibovitz, and today we've got on Professor John Dane. Professor Dane is an assistant professor at Loyola. He joined us in 2013 after serving 23 years in the U.S. Army. He's a West Point graduate, and today we had him on to discuss the national emergency and the construction of a possible border wall. Yeah, Dane came on today to answer the question, what the hell is going on at the border? And it was a great conversation, one that you'll find very interesting. So without any further ado, please give it up for the great and powerful John Dane. Alright, well we are rolling. So, ready. Launch it off, man. Three, two. And welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. He's Jake Rome. And he's Richard Leibovitz. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, five-star reviews. You know the drill by now. Today we've got on Professor Dane. Professor Dane, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And we are discussing what constitutes a national emergency and what's going on at the border right now. So... We dive right in. Sure. All right. I don't see any reason not to. There we go. Let's let's start at the beginning. That is a good place to start. That's uh, Mitch Hedberg. Um, okay. Sound also music. The, yeah. yeah. Also <laughs> sound music. Okay. So, very brief. The wall didn't get negotiated to the budget deal after the last shutdown. So on the same, it was same day he signed the budget. He, President Trump also declared a national emergency, in order to reallocate funding to build, I would say, a signature campaign promise. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with what's a national emergency, per se. Well, there's a an act uh, passed by Congress in 1976 mm. that terminated all prior national emergencies that had been declared and set procedural requirements for declaring a national emergency. That's 50 U.S.C. 1621. And... What it requires is that the president make a proclamation and record it in the Federal Register, but it doesn't require the president to make any specific determination. It doesn't define an emergency. It doesn't do anything other than establish some procedural requirements the president must follow to declare a national emergency, which includes telling Congress which powers he intends to invoke. So it sounds like whoever the president is, if they think that it is an emergency, it is thereby an emergency? Well, that's the language of the statute. Now, the original design of the statute was that Congress retained control over the existence of an emergency by allowing themselves to review the emergency and declare no emergency exists by a joint resolution. That was the original plan. After that statute went into effect, We'll edit that out. <laughs> Take it from the top. I don't, I don't want anybody to think I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> as, a, as a Red Bull, we do not drink on the uh, while recording. <laughs> so Red uh, Bull, not a sponsor, just a great just product. Just a great product. product. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, what, where were we? No, that's right. Yeah. What happened after Congress enacted the National Emergency Act is that the Supreme Court decided INS v. Chadha. And INS v. Chadha is being interpreted by many to 
declare unconstitutional all legislative vetoes. So originally, Congress reserved the power to veto a president's declaration of a national emergency by a joint resolution. Mm -hmm. But after INS Vichada, the perception is, which I'm not sure is reality, that Congress cannot simply pass a resolution. It has to give that resolution to the president, who can then veto it. And then the only way to override that veto would be through supermajorities of both houses. So the original design of the National Emergencies Act was later defeated in part by the Supreme Court's decision in INS v. Chata. So and they can try to block the emergency, but he gets the veto. Right. Okay. Because originally, originally sense both sense. houses were supposed to pass on that question, yeah. and that would be it. But after INS v. Chata, the belief is that they must then present that to the president, who can veto it, and then the national emergency continues unless Congress overrides that veto. And what was the constitutional authority for such a finding, or what was their analysis? So in I, the reason I don't think INS v. Chata necessarily controls is it was a very specific case involving a one-house legislative veto of certain decisions made by the Immigration and national, Nationalization Service. The, in that case, and it, Chata had been given a hardship waiver for uh, deportation. And what happened was whenever those waivers were granted, the list of people to whom they were granted had to be forwarded to both houses of Congress. Either house of Congress could then declare that that person would be deported. What the Supreme Court said is that was an ex exercise of legislative power that had to comply with the requirements of Article I, Section 7 which includes both that congressional action be both bicameral and presented to the president. And because this had the effect of altering the legal rights of an individual, mm -hmm. it had to go through that Article I, Section 7 uh, process. But correct me if I'm wrong, that case is readily distinguishable from the way we've seen national emergency powers used. We don't necessarily have a property or due process implication from, say, Trump's declaration of we need to build a wall. Right, which is why I'm not 100% certain myself uh, that INS Vichada necessarily upset the original statutory plan, but it's generally being asserted by experts in this area, experts in constitutional law, that Chada outlawed all legislative vetoes and not just one house legislative vetoes, even though that was uh, the, the provision at issue in that case. Right, yeah. Okay, okay so this is the 59th time that this has happened, that the, the president's declared a national emergency. These have been used for blocking the Iranian government during the hostage crisis under Carter, everything from that to anti-apartheid bills under Reagan, 9-11, of course. And then this is actually the fourth one under Trump, but it looks like these were rarely used until around, uh, really around Reagan, Maybe a little later. I know that the 76 National Emergencies Act, basically no one voided all the ones before it, but looks like Reagan used it six times and then Clinton used a lot. Bush used over 10. Obama used over 10. So what's, it's, yeah. It's not anyway. uncommon for presidents to declare a national emergency. It is uncommon for presidents to, to declare a national emergency over something purely domestic in nature. In other words, for each of the prior emergencies, that I'm aware of, there's, there's maybe one or two that have very little foreign affairs mm -hmm. connection, but most are a foreign primarily a foreign affairs matter 
that may have domestic effects. Mm -hmm. And so when the president exercises his constitutional powers in foreign affairs, there's, as you know from studying Curtis Wright mm -hmm. uh, in constitutional law and other cases, there's less of a constitutional concern about the separation of powers because the president independently possesses more foreign affairs, more of the foreign affairs powers himself or herself. This is purely a domestic situation. And so the, the separation of powers concerns are heightened in such a situation. And it also involves the power of the purse, which is something that Congress explicitly and solely holds under the Constitution. All appropriations are supposed from the Treasury are supposed to be by Congress, mm -hmm. and the President is using those funds pursuant to some claim statutory authority, but it, it, it is circumventing the constitutional processes that have already occurred by which the President hasn't received sufficient border money. Re refresh my memory. Where exactly is he withdrawing those funds from? Do we know what pot he's dipping yeah. his hand into? There, the, the President... The president's declaration or pl proclamation identified three sources for the funds. Right. One was the uh, treasury funds from seized assets. Another was the military counter-drug interdiction authorities and money. Now, neither of those two authorities require the declaration of a national emergency, but also neither of those authorities contain a lot of money. He's got, you know, less than a billion in counter drug money that can be used by statute, uh, 10 U.S.C. Section 284, to erect fencing along drug corridors. The question is, how how far does that get the president? Or go mm -hmm. ahead. Yeah. He actually claimed in 284 that he was getting 2.5 billion dollars, but the funds only allocate 881,525,000. So right. where does the other? Yeah. So I'm you don't know. Nobody's where sure from. where the rest of that money is is actually coming from. <laughs> right. But the other important part of that is it, it allows the erection of fencing, not walls, mm -hmm. uh, the existing statutory authority, and along, at drug corridors, not just anywhere along the border the president would want to have that fencing. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a very boring debate in the Supreme Court over what constitutes a fence. But Pot <laughs> potentially. Uh, yeah. But again, this isn't the, the most substantial aspect of what the president has done, where he's getting the bulk of the money. Right. Is from military construction authority and emergency military construction authority. Yeah, that's the and it's three point six billion. Three point mm -hmm. six billion. And and that is really the, the deep pocket or pot into which he's reaching to grab money that was designated for other purposes, including potentially family housing, mm -hmm. to be diverted to fund uh, military construction projects at the border. But that in and of itself creates its own set of has its own set of limitations and then will create its own set of problems for the administration. Right. And that, I'm not sure if we said this, but yeah, that is the only, the only one that requires him to declare the emergency. The other two he can reallocate, but I'm still not seeing how he's even going to have enough funding to build the wall, but let's, let's back it up a little bit. Okay. So what is happening at our, uh, at the Southern border and I guess asking you, what, does it constitute an emergency or a crisis? Well, the commentators who've spoken on this uh, all cite Depar uh, Department of Homeland Security numbers, mm -hmm. uh, Drug Enforcement Administration numbers that indicate uh, that the bulk of illegal drugs come through legal ports of entry. 
Mm -hmm. They also uh, cite the fact that uh, arrests at the border are down and that the predominant uh, source of undocumented uh, immigrants present in the country are visa overstays, not people entering the country illegally. See, I, every time I turn on the news, it's I either hear that 60% are overstayed visas or 40% are overstayed visas, but it's always... Those numbers are always always flipped, yeah. But it's all it's a large percentage right. of what's going on, and again, the, the actual apprehensions at the border have decreased significantly in the last ten years. And so, some people are claiming, why is there a, an emergency now, or why are you claiming an emergency now when there hasn't been an emergency for the last ten years? The administration seems to be saying, or at least in some of the most recent statements you've heard from members of the administration, like Stephen Miller. That those <laughs> accomplished author Stephen Miller, those prior presidents have been dragging their feet and not responding to what is a crisis of our sovereignty, uh, including and the, Trump in the first two years. <laughs> and that and that this president is now chosen uh, this time to act and address the problem. Right. It's, so the yeah, in layman's terms, we've just been ignoring it. We've been yeah. ignoring this crisis for too long, according to the administration. Right. And I've, I've heard it. You said 10 years. I've, I've heard numbers and the interviews on uh, there's the Daily, the New York Times podcast. Uh, they interviewed border agents that said this goes back 25 years and they've been screaming about it. Nobody's been down there. So, again, what are we to believe except Trump just declared a national emergency? Jake, you. No, I was just going to say that. In order to justify your state of emergency declaration, you have to kind of like recast the last 25 years of history. Just say all of the American people have been living in ignorance. I mean, that's not a great strategy, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, one thing that could be claimed with regard to the declaration of a national emergency is that Mm -hmm. the president is acting arbitrarily. There's some case law that suggests that when Congress vests a power in the president or vests a power that's conditional upon the existence of a circumstance, for instance, an invasion by a foreign army, uh, that the president who's been given that power is the sole person who can decide whether that condition exists. Right. So there's case law that supports that proposition. But there's another way to think about it in that the Constitution requires every government official to act in a way that isn't arbitrary or that is rational. And so one potential claim by litigants who have brought suits against the president about this national emergency might be that his claim of the existence of an emergency is irrational by his own terms, since he said he didn't need to do this. He only needed to do it to build the wall faster. Right. That's, yeah, it's hard to declare an emergency when in the announcement. Yeah, he did say that. So... But going back to what we were saying in the beginning, there are procedural steps. There are not substantive. So, really, in order for him, in order to declare that there is a crisis at the border and that necessitates a national emergency, he just has to think there is. Right. And so, the milita- if we go back to the military construction authority, is kind of a way to structure our conversation. Mm-hmm. That provision says that in the event of a declaration of war, a declaration by the president of a national emergency in accordance with the National Emergencies Act, that requires use of the armed forces. The Secretary of Defense, without regard to any other provision of law, may undertake military construction projects. So that has two requirements. First, that the president declare a national emergency. 
or that there's a declaration of war. Mm -hmm. And second, that emergency has to require the use of the armed forces. Both of those arguably are, are committed to the president's discretion. Uh, and the president did say in his Rose Garden speech that he's determined that the use of the armed forces is necessary. And in fact, he has sent the armed forces twice to the border last fall and uh, more recently to uh, perform various functions related to potential invasions of immigrants or asylum seekers or whatever it is the president thinks uh, is coming. Okay, so it sounds like my next question was, is declaring a national emergency to build a border wall constitutional? It sounds like kind of. Well, I mean, if you go back to your basic Youngstown Justice Jackson framework, right. where we look at whether the president is acting in, in accordance with the express or implied will of Congress, Congress expressly gave the president the power to declare an emergency. Mm -hmm. He's declaring an emergency in accordance with the procedural mechanism set in place by Congress. He's therefore acting in accordance with the will of Congress, the express will of Congress. And it's going to be hard for a court to say that that is somehow unconstitutional. Again, unless they conclude that the determin his determination that an emergency exists is irrational. Even assuming they want to adopt that constitutional standard of all government officials must act reasonably or rationally, mm -hmm. um, then they'd have to be willing to take that extra step and say the president's not doing that. There are, I mean, there still are a substantial number of apprehensions at the border. There are drugs coming in at places other than legal ports of entry. So whether the court's going to view the president's declaration that there's an actual emergency now with such suspicion that they'll find it to be irrational, uh, even if they adopt that approach to, to this uh, situation, it's questionable. I don't know that a court's going to be willing to go that far behind the declaration to say otherwise. Almost as much as it disturbs me that the president has this sort of plenary power that, and that it's been used more and more in the last decades, I think it would disturb me more if a court tried to get behind the eyes of a president and decide, well, you're acting irrationally, so therefore we're going to strike down this constitutional action that was vested to you. Again, and the, the, the issue is, you know, in part, courts have been unwilling to be too inquisitive or be too searching in their review of executive action when it comes to foreign affairs. And that is the way that this uh, power to declare emergencies has largely been used with regard to foreign affairs matters mm -hmm. and invoking other statutory authorities, uh, such as the International Economic Emergency Economic Powers Act. And so in, the, the, in the, using the combination of these authorities, the president has taken some substantial steps domestically and interfered with the separation of powers domestically. But he's done so with regard to matters that arose in foreign affairs where he has much larger discretion. And he also, in those cases, acted clearly within the scope of the available statutes when there was one. Now, for instance, in the Dames and Moore v. Reagan case, the president not only use the International Economic Powers Act to uh, seize Iranian assets uh, that were being used to satisfy judgments by U.S. companies against uh, Iran. Dames and Moore had actually done uh, nuclear power site surveys for the government of Iran, ironically, Lovely. prior to the <laughs> uh, prior to the revolution. And um, so they were trying to make nuclear weapons then. No, it was when the, the who the Iranians said 
the United States put in power, the Shah of Iran, who was uh, uh, arguably somebody the CIA helped to put into power in Iran, when he was in, in power, we helped, uh, or Dames and Moore, a, a U.S. company, helped survey for nuclear reactor or nuclear power sites. Mm -hmm. And they were owed money. And as a result of the Iranian hostage crisis, there was a, a, a settlement negotiated in which the president terminated all claims against the Iranian government and took them into an international claims settlement tribunal. And he then seized the assets, including severing assets that had been attached for judgment to, to settle judgments, and put those assets in the international tribunal. Mm -hmm. So he did two things. He, he severed attachments and, and took Iranian assets for this international claims tribunal. And he also terminated claims by U.S. companies or entities in U.S. courts and transferred those to this international tribunal. And the court found that the president has historically ex had a power to settle such international claims. Uh, and therefore, the, they believed that he had the power to interfere with the separation of powers in this way to address a foreign affairs crisis. So the, the larger point being, the president does have more, much more substantial discretion, including the ability to do things that don't seem entirely consistent with the separation of powers when it's a for, purely a foreign affairs matter. But here we're talking about domestic security and security at the border. And so it is this domestic nature of the crisis that may cause the courts to be a little more active in looking at what the president has done and looking behind it for the evidence that supports it, possibly. Right. So there's, there's two thought process, processes here. It, the first one would be the president has, is is in charge of national security. The other one would be he's in charge of executing the laws. So when a wall built on the border to stop illegal immigration, drugs, things of that nature, from, from crossing, how does constructing a wall mean national security to... Yeah, how would it mean national security? Because as far as executing the laws, it sounds like the drugs would actually have to get into the United States or the people would have to cross illegally in order for there to be, in order for the president to have any authority, in which case you can't really build a wall because you can't prevent someone from committing crimes, but you can arrest them for committing those crimes. What the president's lawyers will undoubtedly say, or the Department of Justice in defending this action, is that we're talking about the border. The power of the sovereign to exclude people and things from the country mm -hmm. is pretty significant. Uh, and if the president believes that he needs a wall for that purpose in order to protect the nation, then the courts ought to give that decision some deference. But what that doesn't do is give the president money to build that wall. So even if he wants to build that wall, he's got to get money from Mexico or from Congress. <laughs> but even if, he, if we got it from Mexico, it would have to go into the Treasury and then be appropriated by Congress anyway. Right. So he, that's the question, is can he – there's a lot of discussion about him violating the yeah. separation of powers and where, how does he think he has the authority to use this money in this way. Well, it's this – Emergency Military Construction Act, which authorizes the secretaries of the military departments to undertake military construction projects that are necessary to support the use of the armed forces in an emergency. Mm -hmm. Now, each of those things, we've already talked about emergency, are terms of art. What are 
military construction projects. Uh, and then you go to the general definitions of that section, 10 U.S.C. 2801, and you find that military construction is any construction, development, conversion, extension of any kind carried out with respect to a military installation. And I think that language is key and important. Whether to satisfy temporary or permanent requirements or any acquisition of land or construction of defense access road as described in a separate section. So that includes all military construction work and all things necessary to produce a usable facility or uh, fixture. Then you look at what is a military installation. The term military installation is defined as a camp, base, post, station, yard, center, or other activity, and here's the important language, under the jurisdiction of the secretary of a military department. So it seems that the, that the statute defines military construction to include those things necessary to make a usable military installation that's under the jurisdiction of the secretary, which would sound like already. Mm -hmm. Just putting U.S. troops at some random location on the border or having them patrol random locations at the border doesn't mean that those locations are under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of Defense mm. and such that he can use this money to, to engage in construction of anything, right. whether it's uh, barracks for the troops to be housed or walls to protect the troops from invading asylum seekers. It's becoming clear to me that this is going to require a lot of eminent domain right with that's, people who own the yeah that's the other that's the other big issue none of these things gives the president authority to seize right uh, property now he can try to exercise the power of eminent domain but then that requires just compensation if we're going to mm -hmm. take private property right. for public so now use we're going to need more money well, now we're going to need more money and so it's not clear to me how that's all going to play out what I do think is that these lawsuits that are challenging the president's action on general separation of power grounds are missing the point. Yeah. And what I'm, I'm working on uh, an, an op-ed that I may or may not be published, but they're missing the tree for the forest. The administration has put out a forest of information, mm -hmm. legal arguments, and all of these things. And the one tree that upon which most of it is based is this emergency military construction authority. And if you don't look at this tree very carefully to see whether its roots are rotten because there's no national emergency that requires the use of the military, or whether, this metaphor. or whether it. its branches are rotten because... <laughs> I thought you were going a different angle with that, yeah. <laughs> I, see, I thought you were going to say... Um, Wait, let him if finish it, yeah, the go thought. Ahead. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying, or yeah. whether, whether, the, whether it, you know, the tree is, is rotten okay. because they're trying to engage in military construction or, or engage in construction that doesn't meet the technical definition of military construction. If that's not the focus okay. of these lawsuits, they're going to miss the opportunity to uh, put a damper on this. I want to add one other thing. Recently, the acting Secretary of Defense, remember we have an acting Secretary of Defense. Right. Mattis yeah. wasn't going to leave until the end of this month, if memory serves. Right. Mm -hmm. But after he put in his resignation, Trump got rid of him sooner. He did. He said something publicly that got him that, yeah. He, right. He said, I don't need, I don't want the two months. I forgot what happened, but yeah. Well, so that allowed Trump to put in an acting Secretary of Defense, who mm -hmm. now hat is the one vested with authority under the statute to decide whether military construction projects are necessary. Mm -hmm. Well, the, one of the first acts, this acting Secretary of Defense, who's been identified as, as pretty beholden to the administration, which is why he was selected. Sure. Yeah. 
was to say that to the Department of Defense that we will now support the, the president's agenda. So I've always wondered if the national emergency and the need to use this military construction authority has been part of the reason behind getting rid of Mattis early and getting in someone a little more beholden to the president so that he'll be more willing to exercise this authority. The other thing is that the acting secretary of defense recently said, look, yes, the president has done this, but I haven't made any decisions about military construction projects yet. Mm -hmm. So the administration might be able to defeat these lawsuits, at least for now, by saying nothing's happened until the Secretary of Defense actually takes action to try to authorize a military construction project, the case is not ripe. Nobody's suffered any injury and the statute hasn't ah. been, the, the statute hasn't, there's been no failure to comply with the statute. Is he really that good of a troll? <laughs> I mean, the question is whether the, I mean, that's like, the question is whether the, well, the White House Counsel's Office yeah. and the Department of Justice have good enough lawyers to get to, get to these arguments. And I think the answer is gonna be Yes. Uh, Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, depending on how you see this, if you strip out the political, you know, your political right. preferences with regard to whether this wall should be built or not, if you just want the rule of law to prevail, then the right result might be there is no preliminary injunction because it's not clear that what the president's planning to do or what will happen pursuant to this emergency declaration will, in fact, violate any provision of law. To the best of your knowledge, are there cases that have interpreted this language that I'm looking at in 10 U.S.C. Section 2801, particularly, I'd say, on what constitutes a military installation? I mean, it seems pretty specious that a wall would be a military installation. Right. Well, remember that it has to be construction development, conversion, extension carried out with respect to a military installation. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, could, is a military construction project include a wall to protect a military installation? Very clearly the answer to that question is yes. Uh -huh. But it would be to protect a military installation. And was it Fox News Sunday, they interviewed Stephen Miller. I didn't watch it, but I read about it. And Stephen Miller said, the military is now at the border. Anywhere they're patrolling, they need a, they need a, a barrier to protect them. Well, that doesn't, con the fact that they're patrolling in a place does not convert that into a military installation as defined in this law mm. uh, and therefore justify the er erection of a fence or other border barrier related to that quote-unquote military installation. So even having the troops there doesn't get you over the hurdle of the requirement that a military construction project relate to the needs of a military installation. This is just a side note. If you get a chance, go back and watch Fox News Sunday this past week. He, Chris Wallace beat up Stephen Miller pretty well. I heard, pretty yeah. well. And then the next interview, he beat up Rush Limbaugh pretty well. It was very interesting to watch, but you don't get a lot of that on Fox News. Yeah. But anyway, okay, so you, you mentioned Youngstown. So we've talked about basically Congress isn't going to do anything. They can, but it's so, it would be so incredibly difficult for them, too, because they would, it, it's going to get vetoed, and then they'd have to override it. So David Fromm wrote in The Atlantic, once the courts get done, Trump's president might actually set new limits on presidential emergency powers. Remember the most binding Supreme Court ruling on emergency powers delivered a rebuke to presidential power. 1952 steel seizure case, Youngstown, Sheet and Tube, uh, Company v. Sawyer. In the context of a real emergency, the Korean War, President Harry Truman tested the outer limits of his power to seize private property and got told no, and that case still governs to this day. 
So at that point, yeah, we were at war. It was what? a it was the Korea during the Korean War when he he was trying to uh, use the steel to help fund, I think. Well, he he had se- no, he had seized the steel mills because there was a pending strike. And right. he was worried that the the supply of steel needed for military he was worried yeah he was worried that the mills and they wouldn't be able to use yeah he was worried that the supply of steel needed for for military uh, industrial complex purposes would not be available so he attempted to have the secretary of the treasury i believe or the secretary of the interior seize the steel mills and keep them operating despite the strike now a couple of things to distinguish youngstown from this situation Mm -hmm. first there was no declared war and there was no national emergencies act so the president was truly acting independently in trying to create an emergency or to declare the existence of an emergency. Right, but you could very well argue that that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Well, but again, at least he's got a statute yeah. behind him that authorizes him to do this, whereas right. that did not exist, nor had Congress acted in, uh, in, at the time of Youngstown in declaring war. Remember, this was a UN action, and Truman was claiming independent power to participate in that based on the fact that we were members of the UN uh, and that he had, therefore, independent authority to use U.S. troops in that capacity and that what was going on wasn't really war. It was a police action uh, under the the newly adopted uh, United Nations Charter. Mm -hmm. The second way to distinguish Youngstown from this case is that there were relevant emergency powers, but none of them authorized exactly what the president did. And so the question was, whether the president was acting in accordance with the express or implied will of Congress. Of course, what constitutes the implied will of Congress is something that can always be debated. But the court was unwilling to find that Congress had uh, impliedly authorized what Truman did. And of course, in the three-tier framework of Justice Jackson, the, the second tier was that the president acts in the absence of either congressional approval or disapproval and that was the zone of twilight in which the imperatives of events and contemporary imponderables uh, would uh, bear on what happens. Uh, and then in the third tier, when the president acts contrary to the express or implied will of Congress, the president's power is at its minimum. Uh, he can only uh, proceed legally if he has independent constitutional authority. And Justice Jackson said you have to then look at the president's, president's powers minus any powers of Congress over the matter. So one way to think about this military construction statute is because it allows the president to reprogram funds that have been appropriated by Congress, and because that is an uh, an exercise of Congress's express power, that the court should narrowly interpret the Military Construction Act because they're going to assume that Congress meant to give the president only exactly what they said in that statute Mm -hmm. and nothing more because otherwise they're they're implying from the existence of this some broader authority and that doesn't seem appropriate to do in the domestic context, just as it wasn't in Youngstown. So if Trump were to, let's say he secures the funding now, he does, and he's done this through a national emergency, he somehow this gets tied up in the courts, This things like this could take years, off chance he gets reelected. I've done the drive from California to, from, I mean from the t- edge of Texas to California and back three times. How much resources, how many resources would we actually have to reallocate? Because if we're talking about manpower, we're talking about construction, and, and I assume in a national emergency, 
if the military, if it's being spent on the military, does the military have to be the one to construct it, or can you? No, if you look shop at, it out. If you look at the statutes, they can contract for it, and then um, if there's an emergency, there may be exceptions to the normal contracting process. Yeah. There may be exceptions to the normal environmental process because normally you have to do an environmental impact statement for any proposed government program. At, but an emergency might circumvent that process as mm -hmm. well so that all of these environmental concerns that are being raised about a border wall, the butterfly. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> minor, yeah, minor organisms. No, but it's, I mean, there are, there's a lot of farmland on the border and organisms that, are, that travel back and forth on this open land that it would affect the ecosystem. So there is that discussion. Like, you're not, no, I know. Yeah, but like it, if the butterfly effect. If, if you can think of a better or more sappy version of think of the children, it's definitely think the, of the butterflies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Do you, the point being, do you though, not care that, about the butterflies, Jay? No. Have a, have a soul. The, the point being that there, there are other exceptions that the president might invoke that would streamline the process mm -hmm. of getting these contracts let and getting the border constructed. And that's they must be thinking that because Stephen Miller claimed they could have the ma majority of this built by 2020 or it's just uh, a political r rhetoric uh, and not reality. If the money that they're getting is this, the what do, what do we have here? Six and a half billion, but we don't know where one and a half billion is coming from, right? Roughly, plus the other what he what did he end up getting from Congress? One point two. One point two. Yeah. Okay, so one point two. You're not going to be able to build a wall across the entire border, and in that with that money, unless he, which he's kind of known for doing, unless he contracts it out, then doesn't pay them. But, <laughs> but. What, how is it even possible that one, this wall gets built, and two, if it doesn't, what would stop the president from the next president from coming in and just absolutely reversing whatever is happening with the money? Well, nothing would stop, stop yeah. a succeeding president from uh, changing policy because that's what new presidents do. That's yeah. what Trump did with regard to most of what, or much of what the Obama administration did. It's, so, one of the things that president must be counting on is that once he uses this money that was allocated for specific purposes, for a different purpose, that Congress is going to replenish that money. Because if you spend all of our drug interdiction money, for instance, building fences, then how are you going to fund the other things that they are currently doing to, uh, in, in their drug interdiction efforts? Uh, if you use the military construction funds, including money for family housing, and by the way, there are lots of issues with military family housing. It's something mm -hmm. they privatized uh, several years ago, and the people who are the contractors running this privatized housing, in some cases, are alleged to be doing a horrible job. So there's a crisis in military housing, and you're taking the money that might be used for that for this border construction. The president must be banking on the fact that Congress will replenish those funds for the original purpose that they were intended, right? Well, then we have a question of if there's a continuing emergency, because he can recertify this emergency mm -hmm. uh, periodically, could he continue to invoke this power and raid that, that money? I don't know that, you know, Congress would probably be wise to that and put additional constraints, uh, but that legislative process will take time. I did notice that these national emergency declarations don't really get resolved too often. Of the 59, there's been 27 that have expired and 32 are still in effect. Well, so, and that's yeah. an interesting point because they do require an affirmative act 
to to, to recertify them. Yeah. So, okay. you know, when, oh, other presidents have done this, yeah, but they wouldn't be in existence now if your administration hadn't certified the continuing existence of these emergencies. Right. Professor Dane, I don't know if you're a betting man, but <laughs> what, what do you place the odds that this thing is actually going to come to fruition? It depends on what you mean by this. If this means a wall, I don't think a, a wall, but certainly not a, a big, strong wall all across the entire southern border is ever going to happen. There's if, also marshland on that. Though you can't build a wall. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, and then yeah. if, you're, if the, this is appropriate barriers in appropriate places, there's a good chance more of that is going to happen. Uh, Congress has already given a little bit more money, and the president may be able to get at least somewhat down the road and in, in, uh, doing some construction pursuant to these authorities. I'm not sure that, it, like, as it happened in other cases, that there's going to be a preliminary injunction because you, it's not clear to me that they're going to prevail on the merits mm-hmm. um, because until the president or the secretary of defense acts, it's not clear to me that there's even a case or controversy. Uh, so the other authorities don't require a declaration of emergency. They're clear authorities that that authorize uh, that allow the use of funds for this purpose, and so there's no challenge to those authorities. That was, those are the president's good with those. So it's only a couple of million dollars, but it's something that he can use to build barriers. So uh, you know, or, some of yeah. this is definitely going to happen. Yeah. How much I don't know. Mm-hmm. And actually, some of it has happened. The military has already helped construct additional, you know, concertina wire or razor wire fencing and things like that. I wasn't even aware of that. The only thing I'd seen is they had renovated old wall. So right. And and when the president sent the military down in uh, in in last fall, there's reports that they uh, added concertina wire to some of that wall, erected new concertina wire fences, and then when they were done, left them there. I addressed these in the lecture I gave at the school Mm -hmm. in January. The, one of the military officers uh, was speaking about that, said that this was part of their training. They were training for an invasion and that they were constructing these barriers as part of that training and then leaving the stuff there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they've come up with some creative legal arguments, shall huh. we say, uh, to do various things already. And they're going to keep trying to make them uh, to, to get where they want to be. So uh, Bill Barr came out today and said that he expects the Mueller report next week. My question for you is, is the president going to jail? <laughs> is the president going to jail? Until we see what the Mueller report says, I think it's best for me to decline to answer that question. <laughs> I think, I, think <laughs> yeah, I hear you, but I think the fact that he, Bill Barr came out and said that means it's going to be underwhelming. Yeah, you know, this was just a joke question. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, but and I'm, pl- and I'm playing along. <laughs> and I, you know, I, nothing I say means anything. Yeah, and I would just say that you know, obviously not while he's president. So yeah, no, this yeah. was meant to be a joke. It wasn't funny though. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, Professor Dane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank thanks for having me. Yeah. And for Dialogue Novo, I'm Jake Rome, and I'm Richard Leibovitz, and we'll be back next week. Yeah, ba da da